last week we began a series titled Stories of Redemption and we looked at the life of Paul and especially his conversion on the road to Damascus. You know, one of the fantastic aspects of the New Testament is that it's just raw and honest in its portrayal of the main characters. Um, it's just willing to show all of their flaws and failures as, as well as their successes. But it doesn't just focus on the, the great things that they did. It also shows where they came from and the mistakes they made along the way. And I think what this ultimately reveals is the grace of the God about whom this whole thing is written. And so this week we're going to look at our second installment and specifically we're going to look at the life of Peter and the moment that he had with Jesus, really the moment that kind of launched his whole ministry and, and helped him to become the, the Peter who was one of the great founders of the early church. But before we do that, I want to look just quickly at a contextual issue that is going to be really important for us in understanding the life of Peter, and, and that's the role of ancient friendship. Now, when we think about friendship, we think about friends. We think about the relationship that we have with people who aren't our family. We talk about having family and friends. So these are the ones that we're close with who aren't related to us. And friendship is obviously an extremely important aspect of a human experience. Uh, you know, we believe that God created us for community. He created us to be with other people. He didn't want us to be alone. And so uh, helping us in that are friends, people that we uh, relate to, people that we spend time with, and the ones that uh, ultimately bring some richness to our lives. And so when we think about friendship today, we think about the people that we're close to, the people that we just enjoy Whose, whose company we enjoy. We just want to spend time with them and, and be around them and, and we're built up by them. And so there's sort of a, a mutual relational benefit that comes along with, with being friends. And that's always been true of the human experience. There's always, uh, there, there is an, uh, an inbuilt relational aspect to who we are. Uh, and so whenever we're around people that we get along with, it's just natural for us to enjoy that person's company. That, that's how we were made as, as humans. But there was an element to ancient friendship, which was a very important aspect to this. And this was the mutual benefit that friends brought to one another. Friendship in the ancient world was, was much more pragmatic. It was much more about what can you do for me in this relationship? And so people would enter into a friendship for the practical benefit that the other person would give. Now, to be, to be fair, we still have these elements in relationships today, but it's something that is quite a negative. We, we, you know, if when we think about or, or when we realize that somebody is a friend with us just because they want something from us, it, it really... It, it causes us to maybe cut the relationship off. We, we realize very quickly this isn't a person who wants to be friends with me just because of me. They just want something from me. And, and, and that's a, a net negative. We, that would tend to uh, make us want to end the friendship very quickly. But in the ancient world, this was standard. This was actually what was expected. And so you would have you would enter into a friendship with somebody who could give you something. Now, of course, you were expected to give them something in return. It was a mutual exchange. I mean, it was literally, you know, without the sexual element, you're friends with benefits. I'm friends with you because you can provide something for me, and then I can also give you something in return. And so the friendship is it's there to serve 
an ends. It's there to serve a goal. I have this particular aspiration or need. And so I'll enter into a friendship with you because I see you as somebody who can resource me to help me get to that place. And then I, in exchange, can give something similar back to you. And so you enter into the friendship really almost like a uh, in like a contract. You enter into the friendship uh, with almost a, a mutual agreement that we will be friends with one another so long as we continue to benefit one another. And really that's what holds the relationship together. We're friends so long as we help each other out. And it, the the connection, what brings that together is the faithfulness that we have to one another. The, the Latin word for, for faith is the word fides. It's where we get our word fidelity from. And so, so long as we're faithful to one another, faithful in the sense that we continue to provide for one another's needs, then the friendship will continue on. But if at any point one of us breaks that faithfulness, if, if at any point one of us doesn't come through for the other, then the friendship is over. That's it. We're done. The, the contract has been broken. And in fact, we've actually created enemies of one another. It's now gone the opposite way where we no longer consider each other friends. We actually consider each other to be enemies. So friendship is a mutual exchange held together by the faithfulness you have to one another. Now, of course, within that, there might be some uh, shared interests or some you know, you might enjoy each other's company. But again, that is not the priority of the friendship. The friendship is always around serving one another's needs to get to a particular ends. So I just wanted to sort of lay that groundwork um, when we look at Peter's life, but especially Peter's relationship with Jesus and, and, and some of those dimensions that were going on when we get to what happened uh, towards the end of the story. So as with all stories, let's begin at the beginning. Now, we don't know anything about Peter's upbringing. And I said to you last week that this is because in the ancient world, no one cares about who you were as a kid. They only care about what you did as an adult. And so when you, um, when you read a story about a person, it typically starts at some crucial point in their adult life. Uh, people have, somebody has become famous. And so later on, when their story is written down, what is written down is what makes them famous. Uh, and so this is just a standard practice. Um, this is why we just don't know much about really anyone from their childhood, uh, apart from maybe a couple of details that might be important uh, that is somehow speak to why they became famous. They, they retroactively, look, retro, retroactively look back on their childhood and say, oh, that's right, you know, if we think about it, we saw it when they were a kid because of this thing that happened. But that's the only time you find out about their childhood. So again, we don't know anything about Peter's upbringing. We don't know where, uh, what his childhood was like or, or anything about that. That's, that. that's just a very standard uh, sort of thing that we find in, in these stories. And so we first meet Peter when Jesus calls him for the first time. And we pick up the story in John 1. So it says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard that what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and he said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Kephas, which when translated is Peter. And so Simon, son of John, is his name, obviously. Uh, Simon 
been his given name and his designation, the son of John. Now, remember, this is a time when you don't have family names. Uh, apart from the Roman names that we saw last week with Paul, in places like uh, Galilee and Judea, you, these these guys just are known by who their father was. And so it's the same as having a family name, but you're known as the son of whoever your, your father was. So as long as you know the father, then you're going to know who the children are. So Simon, son of John, is his sort of designated name. Um, but then Peter says, so Jesus says, you're going to be called Kephas, um, which is the uh, the Aramaic then for um, the Greek word, which is Petra, which is the word rock. Uh, and so the this name Kephas, this Petra that uh, Peter will come to be known by, is it's really it's it's a name, but it's more of a title. It's more of a almost a designation of a calling. You are going to be the rock. You are going to be the the foundation upon which I'm going to build this new Christian movement that is going to begin uh, in my name. And so that's it's it's more of a calling that that Peter is going to step into as a result of following Jesus. Now. At this stage, Simon or Peter is probably in his late teens. At the most, he's going to be in his early 20s. Now, we get this picture if you're watching movies about Jesus that the disciples were these really old men with these big long beards and and all this sort of thing. It's really a little bit silly. Um, No one really lived that long to become that old to begin with. And so when Jesus is calling disciples, he's going to be picking young men. Um, people that you know would would have otherwise been at school, but very few people could go to school, and so men who have their whole lives ahead of them that he can mold and shape, and then ideally have lots of years ahead of them to carry on the ministry. So these are just young men. Uh, these are just men who are you know sort of about to, or, or probably have already for a few years been working in their careers, and the careers always been the family business, if you remember when he finds uh, these disciples, he finds them working with their fathers. And so Simon was working with John as, as a fisherman, and that was the family business, and so you carry on the family business. This is just what is standard in the ancient world. And so this is where Jesus finds these men. And so could kind of calls Simon and his brother out of this business and they go. I mean, this is the crazy part. They, they leave behind the family business. You know, when you think about the reason why the children stay in the family business is because, well, that's going to become your trade. That's where you're going to be able to provide for your future family. But at the same time, it's where you're going to be able to contribute back to your parents. You, you have children so that in your old age, you've got people that are going to look after you. You don't have old age homes to be able to put your parents into. If you survive that long, you're going to have to rely on your children to be able to provide for you. And so that's going to again be through the family business. And so in leaving this behind, this is a big call. This is a really big step out into this new season. But nevertheless, Simon, son of John, as he's known at that stage, steps out with this calling ahead of him that he's going to be the rock. He's going to be the one who is go- upon whom Jesus is going to build this new church. Now, something we need to recognize about the Jews of this particular time is that they all were all waiting for a revolutionary Messiah. They were waiting for somebody who was going to rise up and overthrow the Romans. 
Uh, this was had always been the expectation for, for, for hundreds of years by this stage. Uh, since coming back from the exile, the Jewish people were living back in their own land, but they were paying taxes to live in their own land. They were The land was owned by uh, always by a foreign empire, be it the Persians or the Babylonians or uh, the Greeks and then now the Romans. Well, every generation has been living under the rule of this foreign pagan power who, to whom they have to pay taxes just to live in their own land. And so this particular situation had been going on for, for centuries at this stage. And the Jews were fed up with it. They didn't want this situation at any time, especially now. And this, was all, this goes back to the founding of their nation. God had promised them, you will have a land. This will be your land in which you can worship me and I will be the God of this land and I'll be your God. And so this is what they were trying to restore. They, they wanted to get back to this point where the land was actually theirs. So the way that that was going to happen would be that somebody was going to have to lead them. They were ruled at this stage by an army. Rome was there and remained there because of their military superiority. And so the only way that we're going to get rid of these Romans is we're going to have to fight them. We're going to have to get rid of them by force. And so for that to happen, somebody's going to have to lead us. God is going to have to send a military general who's going to raise up an army and then lead us to, uh, to freedom to overthrow these oppressors. And so that's the expectation. And so every, time, every generation is wondering if theirs is going to be the one that's going to have the Messiah. And there, so everybody's constantly watching out. Is this person who uh, is you know, popular or this person who is able to draw a crowd or, or has these sort of messianic characteristics, is this, going, is this person going to be the one? And so very naturally, that's the expectation around Jesus. Jesus is somebody who's talking about a new kingdom. He's talking about, um, you know, a new beginning and, and just he, he's got the characteristics. I mean, he's got the miracles happening in the same way of the prophets of old. Um, he's a great teacher and crowds are flocking to him. Surely this must be the one. He's got all the characteristics of a great general, a great military leader. Well, surely this is going to be the guy who's going to lead us to this revolution. And so Peter is no different. Peter was all along thinking this is, I'm part of, not only is Jesus the Messiah, the, the chosen one who's going to lead us, I'm right here with him. I'm right here in the midst. I mean, Peter had really been positioned as the 2IC of Jesus. If you look at all of the other disciples, no one else got a name change. No one else got a title. And yet Peter did. He was the one who was called the rock. He was the one who Jesus said, on you, I'm going to build my church. And so Peter has sort of this, uh, this, this sort of designation or this, this sort of elevated position amongst the 12. And we see that coming through. Peter really sort of takes the lead. Really, Peter becomes the primary disciple amongst them and the one on whom Jesus seems to rely the most. So this has been going on for a couple of years by now. After three years of, of ministering and traveling with Jesus, he's become, he's really been positioned now as the chief disciple. Really, he's living out his calling as the rock. Uh, he really is starting to fulfill this position. But all along, as I said, he's still thinking Jesus is a military leader. 
Um, he's going to be on the forefront of the revolution. Jesus is going to lead the way. And Peter is the one who's not just doing it for himself or for the, for the group of followers, but for the nation. Uh, there's there's a sense of there's a real sense of national identity there's a sense of we're all in this together and when the moment comes we all need to be in the fight and so peter sort of has these thoughts in his mind he's he's the one who's going to be part of this and we see this coming through when they come to the last supper and they're all seated and jesus is starting to talk about what's about to happen it's obviously the, it's a tense moment they all know something is going to happen they're in jerusalem uh it's the passover and if anything's going to happen it's going to be at the passover if you remember the passover was the celebration of when god led them out of egypt he he overthrew their captors and he led the people to freedom and so if anything is going to be happening it's going to happen at passover and it's going to happen in Jerusalem. It's going to happen right where the temple is. And so that's exactly where they find themselves. They're in Jerusalem. The temple's just there. And more than that, the, the city's flooded with people. This is a, a pilgrimage holiday. People come from not just all around Israel, but all around the world to come and celebrate the Passover. So the city is flooded with people who are all there to celebrate that time when God freed them from their captors. So naturally, this is going to be a tense moment. And Jesus isn't helping the situation. He's talking about some terrible thing that is about to happen, that he's about to be taken away from them, um, you know, that, that everything is about to change. And so clearly people in the room are thinking this must be it. This must be the moment when it's all about to go down. And we see this coming through in Peter. I've got four different accounts here of, of him. He's basically the same statement. Where John 13, 37, he says, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. The same statement in Mark 14, 29. He says, even if all fall away, I will not. Matthew 26, 35, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And then Luke 22, 33, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. I mean, these are clearly revolutionary declarations. He is declaring himself as the most faithful and most loyal lieutenant that Jesus has. That all of these other guys here, they're probably going to fall away. They're going to chicken out. They're going to be cowardly. That will never, never happen with me. I am here. I'm ready to die with you. And I'm, I'm, I'm up for the fight. You know, come on, bring it on. We're, we're going to do this thing. And so already we can see Peter has these revolutionary um, motivations, this sort of revolutionary spirit about him, that this is the time, he's the one, and we're going to do it. This this is the time that Israel is going to be freed. But then as they're sit sitting around, and it's a tense atmosphere, Jesus says something that would seem to confirm Peter's revolutionary thinking. He says, my, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. And so Jesus says here, I'm your friend and you're my friend so long as you do the things that I tell you, which is to love. But the true love that I'm talking about is to lay down your life for your friend. And now Peter would be thinking at this point, I just said the same thing. That's exactly what I just said. I just said to you, I am willing to lay down my life for you. And then Jesus says, there is no greater love than this. This is, uh, this is exactly the sort of thing that I'm looking for amongst my followers. And so, again, this would seem to reaffirm for Peter that he's thinking the right 
things. He is his revolutionary desires are in line with what Jesus is trying to do. Now I just wanted to stop in this verse for a moment and just look a bit closer at some of the language here. Now we we said at the start of the podcast we're talking about friendship. Now the Greek word for friendship is the word philos. So you are my friend, you are a philos to me. We are philoi as friends. Now, it's a word that you might be familiar with, the word philos. It means love, but it's a certain type of love. It's sort of a, the love that you would have, you would expect between friends. And so we, we do actually use it quite a bit in our English. So, for example, you think about the word philosophy. Well, that's from two Greek words, philos, love, sophia, wisdom, philosophia, philosophy, or philanthropy, philos, love, uh, anthropos, mankind or humankind, so the love of humanity, philanthropy. And so you can, apply, you can think of all the different examples where you find this, uh, this combination at work. But that friendship that we talked about, that was, uh, that was a philos. But Jesus says something different here. He says, love each other. This word agape, it's a different sort of word. The word agape is not one that's typically used in the ancient world at all. It's not really a love that has any sort of context, not in marriage and not really between friends. This agape idea of sacrifice, self-sacrifice, laying down your life for the other person, it certainly doesn't fit the model of friendship that we're talking about here. This idea of friendship of we're here because of this mutual benefits that we have for one another, that doesn't really fit with I'm going to lay down my life for you and get nothing in return. And that's an entirely different thing. Now, again, I think Peter would have really more focused or picked up on the idea of laying down your life for your friends. And Jesus says, you know, to lay down your, your life for one's friends, philoi. So he uses the language there of friendship, but he's trying to elevate it into a new realm, a, a type of friendship where you would die for the other person and get nothing in return. That's not what a typical friendship is. You know, you might have the same shared desires and the same focus that this friendship can bring, but Jesus is elevating it to a different place and one that certainly wouldn't have fit or made a lot of sense in that context. So nevertheless, Peter is um, he, he's on board, you know, he's, he's ready to go uh, in this whole endeavor. And so as the night goes on, they, uh, they get up and they leave and they go out to the garden. And it's what happens next that really reveals to us what sort of um, motivation or what sort of um, attitude that Peter had in this situation. So the story, in our story, it's now late at night, probably after midnight, and they're out in the garden and the, uh, the mob come out to arrest Jesus. And so we, we know the story, but Jesus is confronted by Judas and by this mob that's come to, to arrest him. And so you can imagine this is an incredibly tense moment. I mean, quite clearly, Jesus is about to be arrested. It's going to be violent. And Jesus knows what, what's coming. The disciples are, um, well, they don't, they don't know what Jesus knows. They don't know what's about to happen the next day. But obviously, they realize that something, something big is about to occur. And in Peter's mind, he would be thinking, well, this is the, the, the revolution. It's begun. Uh, these guys have come out to start the war, and we're we're ready to fight. This is it. We're going to um, we're we're, we're going to start with this. This thing is about to be on, and so 
The story in John 18.10, it says, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. Now, in Luke's account of the story, it says that Jesus actually healed the man's ear. So that's very interesting. But nevertheless, he, he cuts off the priest's, um, the servant of the high priest, he cuts off his right ear. And so Jesus commands Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. Now, in this particular story, these people are the Roman authorities. They're working directly for the Romans in in this particular time. Uh, And so this is the natural enemy that Peter would have imagined would be the sort of people that they're fighting against. And so in the story then, Peter attacks the man and cuts off his ear. Now, just a couple of things about this story. Um, we, you might imagine, as it says there, he drew, draws a sword and cuts off the ear. You imagine some, you know, long sword like some great medieval knight that, and Peter, this being a great swordsman, very accurately cut the ear off the man who was attacking him. It's really not the case. The word for a sword here is just any sort of sharp blade. What this would have been would have been more like a dagger. Uh, Peter being a fisherman, um, or sorry, Peter just being somebody, um, you know, living in tense times, following a pretty controversial character. This was him just defending himself. This is something he would have had with him as just a means of protection, uh, in, in dangerous times, that's what you're going to need. And so this would have been just a small dagger that he would have been carrying around on his belt. Now, the fact that he cut the guy's ear off, um, again, you might have this image of this very deadly, accurate swordsman that, well, I've cut your ear off and that's just a warning for what's coming next. Like that, that he was, you know, some sort of very sharp, very accurate movement. Um, I doubt that. Peter's a fisherman. He's not a swordsman. He's not trained to fight with daggers like some sort of ninja. Uh, He's just a guy who knows how to fish. And so to cut somebody's ear off, well, you're probably not aiming to cut the person's ear off. You're probably aiming to kill them. You're you're stabbing your, your knife towards the person's head with or their neck with the intention to kill them. And you're full of adrenaline. You're not a trained swordsman. You're just a guy who's got a knife in his hand and who's ready to fight. And so you're swinging this thing around wildly. And in an attempt to put this knife through this person's head or neck, he's cut their ear off. So what we've got to realize here is that Peter's trying to kill this guy. Peter is... He's thinking that this is the war and this is what it's going to require and so has stabbed out at this bloke and cut his ear off. But then in this crazy twist of the story, not only does Jesus heal the man's ear, I mean, just that in itself, he helps the man. He doesn't help Peter. He actually steps in front of Peter and heals the man and then turns to Peter and he says, stop, you're the one doing the wrong thing here. Peter is the one getting rebuked. Peter's the one who's misread the situation. Now, I I think in this moment that Peter was just disillusioned. See, Jesus had just said a true friend is ready to lay down their life for the other person. And so Peter said, well, I just said that I was going to do that, and this is Peter ready to die for Jesus. He's not not just thinking of self-preservation. He's just throwing himself at a small army of armed men, and he's ready to fight all of them. 
this is a really crazy adrenaline-filled bold moment that Peter's stepping out into, but he's taking seriously what Jesus has just said, which is to lay down your life for your friends. That's true friendship, and that's what I'm expecting in this particular group. But what he's misunderstood is what Peter meant by that. Jesus was about to lay down his life for his friend, but not the way that he expected, which was in battle. What Jesus is saying is that I'm going to lay down my life for my friends on the cross. So Jesus, again, knows what's coming. And so he's said he's, he's going to fulfill his expectation for friendship. Peter has misunderstood the situation and has thought, well, I'm going to die for this guy, but I'm going to die for him fighting alongside him to begin this great revolution. And so again, I think in this moment, Peter's looking at Jesus helping the man who's the enemy, rebuking him, thinking, what the heck is going on? This is not what I expected to happen. But then even more than that, Jesus hands himself over to his captors. He just meekly surrenders and then is arrested right there in front of him without even putting up a fight. So what again, what is going on? I'm the one getting in trouble here for doing what I thought was what we were supposed to be doing here. Jesus gives up to these guys. And again, what is going on? And so Peter is, I would imagine, very shocked, very um, just confused uh, about what's going on in this situation. But nevertheless, he still follows Jesus, uh, follows behind Jesus after he's been arrested. And so the story goes on, John 18, 15, Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold and the servants and officials stood around the fire they'd made to keep warm. Peter also standing with them, warming himself. Now, at this point, this is a very well-known story. Peter's denials, all of the Gospels talk about this, these three times that Peter denies Christ. And for all of my Christian life, I've always thought Peter denied Christ because he was a coward because he was afraid. He was confronted about his allegiance to Christ and he saw the the tension that was going on and he worried about his own life and so he denies Jesus so that he doesn't go down the same path and be arrested uh, or maybe even crucified in the same way that Jesus is going to be. But then as I thought more about it, I realized, you know, I don't think actually this is the case. We'll take, for example, just an hour ago in this story, he was ready to die for Jesus. Now, here, here is Jesus being confronted by a, a mob of, of authorities who are there armed, ready to arrest Jesus. Peter doesn't run away. He jumps in front of Jesus, draws his dagger, knowing that if 
a fight breaks out, he's going to die. He's vastly outnumbered. He's the only person with a weapon fighting back. He's going to die in that circumstance. You don't walk away from that situation alive, uh, or at the very least, not arrested. Nevertheless, Peter jumps out. Now, you could say he's foolish. You could say that he's um, that he's just rationed um, and he's an, an adrenaline-filled idiot, whatever you want to say. But you don't call that cowardly. The other disciples ran away. That's cowardly. Peter jumped in front of Jesus, ready to go, ready to start the fight. So I would look at that and say that's that doesn't seem to be a terribly cowardly thing. But then again, when the other disciples had run away, Peter followed Jesus all the way down to the house of the high priest. Now the high priest is effectively the king. Okay, he's the guy who is directly uh, the the direct authority under the Romans themselves. He's the spokes. He, he's the one who works on behalf of the Romans. Now, the Romans again, if you remember, they have this thing called crucifixion, and it's the, the high priest just has to say, "Get this guy crucified," and the Romans w- will be able to do that. So Peter follows Jesus who, all the way down to the doorstep of this guy who has the authority of life and death. Uh, over over the the citizens, so again, I just this doesn't strike me as a guy who's a coward. I actually think at this moment, Peter's having doubts about who Jesus is. For all of this time, he'd thought Jesus was the revolutionary Messiah that's going to lead them against the Romans, and so when he's confronted on his loyalty and his allegiance to Jesus, I think he has second thoughts. This person comes up and says, hey, aren't you one of his disciples as well? In fact, it's not even a it's it's a servant girl. I mean, it's a slave girl that he's asking Peter. I mean, you talk about the lowest of the low status. You don't get any lower than a slave girl. So this is nothing to be afraid of. Nevertheless, Peter, in the face of this girl, says, you know, I, I'm not. But again, I think what Peter's going, what's going on in Peter's mind is, I don't know if he's the person I thought that he was. All this time I thought he was this, and now suddenly I've got second thoughts. And so my thinking here is when he's confronted about it, it's not, oh, no, I'm not, please don't hurt me. I think it's more like, come to think of it, I don't know that I am. He's not who I thought he was, and I don't think he's actually somebody worth dying for. At least that's what I think is going on in Peter's mind at this moment. But then the story goes on, verse 25, it says, Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. Now again, if you've been confronted about your loyalty and you've denied it, and if it was out of cowardice, that would be the time to run away. Okay, you mean, all right, you've you've been a bit reckless, you've come down to the high priest's house, you've, you've proven your point, but really you're gutless, you're cowardly, now's the time to go. But he stands around. He hangs around with the people in the courtyard, warming himself, waiting to see what's about to happen. Again, this just doesn't strike me as the actions of somebody who's cowardly. It strikes me as a guy standing around thinking, what is going on? Who is this guy? Because I don't know if he's the person that I thought that he was. And so then, again, he's confronted. They asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Now, again, (laughs) the relative of the guy who Peter had just attacked and cut the ear off comes up to Peter 
and says, "You're." Uh, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Now, I mean, again, if Peter is a coward, at this point he's confronted by somebody who has who has just seen him attack his relative. He, he, he would recognize this guy and realize that this could go down really badly. This would be the time to run. But again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Now, we talked about friendship. We talked about the faithfulness that holds a friendship together. We have these mutual interests. We have this shared uh, outlook in our relationship. And this relationship holds together so long as we are faithful to one another. But the minute you break that faithfulness, you've created an enemy. There's only, there's only two extremes in a relationship. There's no in-between. And so you are either fully in, faithful to the other person, but it, or you've broken faithfulness and you've now made an enemy. So in this moment, Peter's broken faith. This, what he thought was this relationship or this shared outcome, which was that we're going to overthrow the Romans, that's all dissipated now in Peter's mind. And more than that, He's broken faithfulness. This is it. This is done. This relationship, as far as he's concerned, is it's over. But anyway, the story continues. And Jesus appears to them a couple more times. Um, there's a few different occurrences here. And in one case, we see uh, Peter going down to the tomb. They get the report that the tomb is empty. And so he and uh, John run down there, which again, you sort of think this, this is not the actions of a coward. He would have been long gone by now, but you don't go down to the scene of the crime. You don't go down to check the tomb. That's you know he's being guarded by Roman authorities. That's just that's not the place you need to be if you're one of his followers. But Peter doesn't care about that stuff. He goes down to, to see what's going on. You know, the fact that, hey, Jesus, if he's come to come back to life, well, maybe he is who we thought he we that we thought that he was he's come back to life and you know he's got god powers now or something crazy is going on maybe he is maybe we just we gave up on him too quickly who knows what was going on in his mind but nevertheless he he goes down to the tomb and sure enough jesus is gone and then on a couple of other occasions jesus appears and peter is presumably there with him but we just don't hear anything about that but then Jesus appears to them another time, and this is the, 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 the encounter that I guess we're both the most familiar with. John 21.2 says, Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. Simon Peter says, I'm going out to fish. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, this is a really remarkable turn of events. Well, it's kind of expected, I guess, but it's, it's, it's almost like the nail in the coffin. Simon Peter was a fisherman. That's what he was before Jesus called him. Jesus had come along, called him from his boat and said, you cut, you'll be one of my disciples and I'm going to give you a new name, a new calling. You're going to be Peter. And that's what Peter had been living in for the last three years. He'd been the rock. He'd been Jesus's 2IC, Jesus's lieutenant in this particular story. But then all of these events had occurred. Peter had become disillusioned and really had, well, at this stage, he'd given up. He'd gone back to the way things were. Forget about the last three years. Whatever the last three years were, it's going to be interesting stories for the grandkids. But that's done now. 
that's behind me. Now I need to go back to my former life, back to where I was before this Jesus ever even entered into my life. And he says, I'm going back to fish. And everybody else with him says, you know what, we're going with you. See, because Peter was still the leader. Peter was the leader in the absence of Jesus. Everyone had looked to him as the rock. He was the lieutenant. And so if Jesus isn't around, we do what Peter says. And so they're all looking to him for a decision. They're looking to him for leadership. He says, I'm going out to fish. They go, all right, well, I guess that's what we're doing now. We're going back to the way that things were. Whatever this three years was, that's done. We're going back to our, our old lives. Well, anyway, it's in this particular time that Jesus encounters them one more time. And so they, they're down at the beach and they'd come in and they'd fish. They'd, they'd buy a miracle that had this great catch. And so they're sitting around the fire. And verse 15, it says, When they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? There's a couple of things going on in this verse. First of all, do you notice that when he addresses him, he says, Simon, son of John. Now, that's not his name. His name has now become Simon Peter. Really, it, it, it had become Peter. Yet Jesus addresses him as Simon, son of John. Now, he hadn't addressed him as that since he first met him, back when Peter was fishing again, back in the right before all of this had started to happen. And so Jesus comes and meets Peter down on the beach and he calls him Simon, son of John. Because where Jesus had met him really was back at the beginning. Peter had reverted back to his old life and so Jesus meets him where he is. He doesn't call him Peter because he's not living as Peter anymore. He's, he's stopped doing that. He's gone back to the old ways. And so he says, Simon, son of John. He says, do you love me more than these? Now the word he uses here is the word agape that type of friendship that Jesus had said to them at the Last Supper, this, this is what friends in my group are going to look like. We're going to love each other with this agape love, not this philos love, not this phileo love, this agape love, this entirely different sort of kingdom love that I want my followers to have for each other. And so he says, you know, do you love me more than these? Well, more than what? What, what are you talking about here, Jesus? He says, he's saying to him, do you love me the way that I commanded you to? Now, what had Peter said to Jesus on that, at that last supper? He said, even if all of these other people, all these other guys here, even if and when they fall away, I will never leave you. I love you more than all of these people put together. The, the love that I have for you is just next level. And so then Peter said, John, Jesus says to him, Really? <laughs> really? Yeah. You walked away. You said you'd never give up on me. You said you loved me more than all of these other men here. Is that still true? Or was that all just talk? But importantly, what Jesus is saying here is, do you love me the way that I am or the way that you want me to be? You've seen who I am now. I'm not the revolutionary Messiah that's going to overthrow the Romans that you expected. But do you still love me? Now that you know who I am, now that your expectations have not been met, but now that it's clear who I am and what I, what I bring, do you still love me? Do you love me more than these the way that you said that you did? Is that still the case? And look at Peter's response. He says, yes, Lord. He says, you know that I love you. Now, 
you don't notice this in your English Bibles, but he says here, I love you, phileo. It's that friendship love. It's the love that is expected between mutual acquaintances who have a shared outlook. But Jesus is wanting something more than that. Jesus is working in a completely different framework. Peter's still working in the old friendship framework. And so Jesus says, do you love me with a kingdom love? And Peter says, yeah, look, we're still friends. Yeah, I'm still your mate. We're not, I'm not at there. I'm not where you want me to be, but yeah, I guess I'm still, yeah. All right. We're still, we're still friends here. And so Jesus says, feed my lambs. Verse 16. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And again, with this agape love. And he answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you with this phileo love. Jesus says, take care of my sheep. So same question and the same answer given. But then the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, here Jesus changes the language. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Phileo love. See, he's been pushing Simon, pushing Peter to get to this agape love, this kingdom love that he wants from his followers, realizing that Peter's just not there yet. And so he says, all right, I'll meet you where you are. Simon, son of John, we're friends. We're going to restore things where they are. It's not where I want it to be, and we're going to get there one day. But for right now, let's just, let's just, let me just meet you where you're at. Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Again, phileo. Jesus said, feed my sheep. So Peter had been restored. The relationship that in any other context, you break faithfulness, that is the, the friendship is done, we are now enemies. P- Jesus had restored that relationship back to that friends, that phileo stage. There was a lot to be done. There was more trust to be rebuilt, particularly from Peter to Jesus. He needed to come to terms with who, who Jesus actually was, that he's not this revolutionary Messiah that he expected. There was work to be done, and that was going to be done in, over the, re- the course of the rest of Peter's life, but he had been restored. Now, what's most interesting about this story, I think, is that when you look right across the book of Acts, you look across the rest of Peter's life, he never gets called Simon again. Jesus met him there on that beach. He met him where he was at. He'd, gone, he'd reverted right back to where he'd begun. Jesus met him where he was, restored him, But then from that moment forward, Peter stepped into his calling, still with plenty of work to do, but stepped into that calling of being Peter. And this is reflected in the fact that he was only ever called Peter for the rest of his life. He stepped into that calling and he never looked back. So I I love this story. I just, I really love this story of Peter because again, it's one of those times where the Bible just doesn't hold back. Here's a guy who becomes the first pope. I mean, Peter is, alongside Paul, the greatest apostle ever. He, he, did, he built the church that we are still in today. Yet his story is as checkered as ours. It's, his story is as broken as our story, that Peter was just an ordinary guy who made some of the biggest mistakes you could possibly make that let Jesus down in the biggest possible way. Nevertheless, still managed, still was used by Jesus to do the most incredible things. 
And so I take courage from that because I think if you can do that for guys like Saul who becomes Paul, if you can do it for Simon who becomes Peter, my goodness, who, who, what can you do it with? Who, who, who else can you use in these incredible ways? Well, anyway, I hope that's been helpful. I hope that's been encouraging. Next week, we are going to look at Mark. I said we're going to look at Mark this week. Um, I, that was my mistake. So we're actually going to look at Mark next week. And, and another similar story of a guy, a young kid who blew it as a boy, but became something incredible later on in life. So hopefully you'll join me for that. Otherwise, have a great week and I'll see you next time. Thank you.